from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to do something we haven't done in nearly a year and a half, dedicate a show to films for whom their release was the only release ever done by a particular distributor. This is number five of The Orphans. Since it's very hard to do a full show on a distributor that only ever released one movie, I collect these orphans like a crazy cat person collects felines and every so often unleash them grouped together so that they can have their moment in the spotlight. But before we get to that, a quick shout out and thank you to listener Matthew Martin, who found something I wasn't able to find for our last episode. On our MPM episode, I mentioned I couldn't find a single play date for the 1982 Uli Lomel movie Brainwaves, starring Keir Delay of 2001 A Space Odyssey fame. Well, Matthew found one for me, and ironically found it in a place I was searching for it. The Friday, November 19, 1982 edition of the Cincinnati Inquirer has a quarter-page ad for Brainwaves, showing it playing at three theaters in Cincinnati, the Eastgate, the Erlanger, and the Springdale Theaters. So thank you, once again, to Matthew for that find. Our first movie of today's episode, The Last Fight, was the eighth film directed by the legendary Fred the Hammer Williamson, who also wrote, produced, and starred in the film as his most iconic character, Jesse Crowder. And a quick primer for those of you who are unsure of who Fred Williamson is. After a successful football career in the American Football League in the 1960s, Fred Williamson would quickly become one of the top stars of black cinema. He would become such an important figure in black cinema that within five years, he was writing and or producing, and or directing his own films. He was so big, he was able to get Paramount Pictures to release not one, but two movies with the N-word in its title into theaters. To help get the film made and released, Williamson would turn to film industry veteran Mel Marone, who had recently left World Northall Pictures, a company he started in the early 1970s to handle Godzilla, and Bruce Lee movies before they turned to global art house films like Peter Weir's The Last Wave and Nicholas Rogue's Bad Timing, A Sensual Obsession, who was starting up a new distribution company called Best Film and Video. Filmed in 1981, a pre-crossover Dreams Ruben Blade stars as Andy Kid Clave, a singer who has turned to boxing to pay the bills. He signs a contract with a shady boxing promoter, who kills Kid's girlfriend when the promoter thinks Kid is about to back out of his contract. Kid soon discovers there's a blood clot in his head that could kill him, so he teams up with Williamson's Jesse Crowder to try and finish off the promoter and win a major title at the same time. Also featuring boxing promoter Don King as himself, the legendary Joe Spinell, and a pre-to-live-and-die-in-L.A. Darlene Flugel, the last fight would open on 79 screens in New York City on September 9, 1983. The reviews were not good. In fact, they were brutal. Brutal much like the fate of practically every character in the movie. But Williamson was still a marquee name, at least in New York City. And the first three days would see the film bringing in $430,000, the second best new opener in town, and the fourth best performing movie overall. But that wasn't enough for most theater operators. By the following week, most New York theaters had dropped the film for other movies and the only theater still playing the film in Manhattan, the RKO National Twin, saw its second-week grosses drop from $30,000 to just $8,000. And by the third week, it would be out of the Big Apple completely. 
but all those prints moved to other markets to open on September 30th. Three in Charlotte, two in Greenville, South Carolina, one in Anderson, South Carolina, Beaufort, South Carolina, Durham, North Carolina, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The next stop for the film would be Chicago, where the film played on 24 screens starting October 7th. Williamson himself would fly into the Windy City to make an appearance at the famed Chicago Theater, where the prime show would be preceded with a prize fight on the streets in front of the theater. This promotion would help the Chicago Theater do $15,500 for the opening weekend, but the other 23 theaters in Chicago could only manage $29,000 between them. The following week, October 14th, the last fight would open on 31 screens in Los Angeles, including 14 drive-ins. And as always, there were no reported grosses, but Variety did track nine of the theaters playing the film in Tinseltown, where it would earn $45,000. In its second week in Los Angeles, the film would be relegated to B-movie status at the theaters and drive-ins still playing it, including one in Carson, where a Pepsi bottling plant is now set up, supporting Eddie and the Cruisers. There'd be a few more playdates after that, including four screens in St. Louis for Thanksgiving weekend, but a grim $6,000 in five days would kill off the film once and for all. The final box office take would be around $600,000. Best Film and Video would cease to exist after that, and every Fred Williamson-directed movie afterwards, that's 11 and counting, has gone direct to video. Our next movie is the third movie in the quote-unquote Howling series, which, like the previous Howling quote-unquote sequel, has almost nothing to do with the 1981 Joe Dante classic and takes place in a completely different setting. Although this one thing it does have in common with the second Howling movie is that they're both directed by Australian journeyman filmmaker Philippe Mora. Mora left the production of The Howling 2 after having a difference of opinion with the producers about the direction of that film with the producers adding in additional nudity into the film against his wishes. Mora would actually finance the million-and-a-half-dollar Howling 3 himself, as he wanted to make amends to the fans of the first Howling movie for how bad the second Howling movie turned out. Filmed in Australia during their spring of 1986, remembering that the Southern Hemisphere, our fall is their spring, the film would star popular Aussie actor Barry Otto as Harry, an Australian anthropologist who gets caught up in a pack of werewolves in the outback, including one, Jerboa, who becomes a movie actor after a film director spots her on a park bench near the Sydney Opera House after she flees her sexually abusive stepfather. And then it gets crazier. After seeing several dozen young Australian actresses, including a then 19-year-old Nicole Kidman, Mora would hire 16-year-old Imogen Ansley to play Jerboa, which makes parts of the film where Ms. Ansley is almost completely naked with only a sheer wet negligee or fur covering her rather uncomfortable. Gary Brandner, the author of the Howling novels, which the films are somewhat based on, approved of Mora's idea to satirize Hollywood and filmmaking inside a werewolf movie, although some Howling dogmatics will point out that because of one scene in the movie, the werewolves aren't actually werewolves, but no one really cares. It's a silly movie that doesn't take itself or its audience too seriously. Square Pictures, not to be confused with, as one Chicago film critic did, with Circle Pictures, the 1980s American independent distributor, started by indie film legend Ben Barinholtz, who released movies like the Coen Brothers' first film Blood Simple and John Woo's The Killer, or Square Films, 
the production company started by Square Enix, the creators of the Final Fantasy game series for their 2001 film Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, would pick up the American distribution rights to the film. Who was Square Pictures? I have no freaking clue. They never released a movie before The Howling 3. They never released one after. And as far as I can tell, they never filed for a business license in any major state like California, Delaware, Nevada, or New York, where most businesses are incorporated. But whomever they were, they had some money to get the film a somewhat proper release. With ad support in the major newspapers, Square would release The Howling 3 on 10 screens in New York, 25 in Los Angeles, and 10 in Philadelphia, as well as screens in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Wilmington, Delaware, on November 13th, 1987. And like you've heard so many times recently on this podcast, the distributor did not report any grosses. But the film would do a dismal $30,000 in its 10 New York theaters, an okay 21500 in the five Los Angeles theaters tracked by Variety that week, and $3,500 in the one Philly theater track. The following week, The Howling 3 would only be playing in one of those theaters, the State Theater in downtown Los Angeles, as the B title in a triple feature, alongside The Running Man as the A title, and Prom Night 2, Hello Betty Lou, as the C title. On December 4th, the film would open on four screens in Atlanta, three in Fort Worth, Texas, and three in Vancouver, Washington. Again, no reported grosses, but one theater in Atlanta that was tracked did $3,400. December 11th, there were two new bookings in Akron, Ohio, and three in Phoenix. Again, no reported grosses between those five theaters, and the one theater in Atlanta that was still being tracked. Combined, a dismal $9,500. December 18th would see two new screens in Chicago, six in Detroit, and five in Miami. No reported grosses, but the two screens in Chicago did $10,000. By Christmas Day, only two theaters would be playing the film in the entire nation, one in Miami and one in Sacramento. And by New Year's Day 1998, it was all over. And the final gross from the theaters that were being tracked by Variety? $77,943. But it's probably more like $125,000 to $150,000 once you add in all the theaters that were never tracked. Ironically, the film would get some decent poll quotes from some major critics. Vincent Canby, the lead film critic for the New York Times, gave faint praise for the film, with the statement that if someone was only going to watch one werewolf movie that year, it might as well make it this one, a not-altogether straight-faced howler on behalf of the Lincolnthropes' liberation. And Leonard Claddy of the Los Angeles Times noted in his review of the film that it was a campy recycling of familiar Fangoria that was fitfully entertaining. Our third and final film of this episode, I saved for last because as I was researching this film and its filmmaker, I started to wish I'd heard of him more while he was making films because he was the epitome of what independent filmmaking was all about. Also, Fred G. Sullivan and I happened to share a birth date. Fred was born on November 14, 1945 in Glen Falls, New York, at the base of the Appalachian Mountains, that extends from Newfoundland Island in Canada to central Alabama. As Sullivan grew up, graduated from high school, and moved into adulthood, his heart never really left the region. He would receive a B.A. in history from Fordham University in New York City in 1967, the year I was born, and received a master's degree in filmmaking from Boston University five years later. 
Like Steven Spielberg, he had grown up using his town and his friends and family to make 8mm films. But unlike his slightly younger contemporary, Sullivan returned to upstate New York, where he'd marry, have four kids, and work a variety of jobs while he worked on his first movie, a 1981 adventure drama called Cold River, which would be the first movie in several decades to be completely shot in the Appalachians. Based on a novel by William Judson, Cold River would feature such Hollywood actors as Richard Jekyll, Robert Earl Jones, brothers of James Earl Jones, and Brad Sullivan from Slapshot and the Untouchables, who is no relation to Fred G. Sullivan. Jekyll plays an Adirondack guide in 1932 who takes his daughter and stepson on a camping trip, only to find themselves separated during a ferocious and unexpected winter storm. The two kids must fend for themselves to get back home without food or protection from the elements. Naturally, Cold River would open at the Route 9 Cinema 5 Theater in Glen Falls, New York on May 15, 1981, and play for five weeks to sold-out crowds. And while Fred G. Sullivan had incorporated the Adirondack Alliance Film Corporation in New York State in the early 1980s to make the movie, and that he would book the film in his home city theater himself, deliver the print, and collect his portions of the ticket sales, Adirondack Alliance didn't actually release the movie. There's no credit for the company in the opening or closing credits. And what prints there are out there on the interwebs have Pacific International Enterprise, who would pick up the movie from Sullivan for general national distribution as the distributor. Outside of their logo, the film's credits look otherwise untouched from when it played in Glen Falls. This is an important distinction because if they had released Cold Mountain, the film I'm going to be talking about in a moment wouldn't qualify as an orphan. But to get back to Cold River real quick, Pacific International would open the film first in Boise, Idaho on November 27, 1981, the day after Thanksgiving, before starting 1982 in Biloxi, Mississippi in early February. And then it would disappear again until arriving in Tallahassee, Florida in Victorville, California in early October. And then it would disappear again until it opened in Burlington, Vermont on Christmas Day. And then it was gone until it started showing up on cable television in late July 1983. There seems to be a lot of fans for this movie that I've never heard of until I started researching this episode, probably because they were the right age when cable movie channels were showing up in homes across the nation, and the ability for a movie like this to get on a lot of plays because there weren't a whole lot of movies available on the cable yet. But because Sullivan owned the non-theatrical rights to his movie himself, he would soon find himself earning enough from it to start thinking about his next movie. And the idea Sullivan would come up with was a maybe autobiographical, maybe documentary about himself, his family, and his life as an independent filmmaker. Fred would play Fred G., or as some in the film call him, Adirondack Fred, who spends most of the film with his wife and kids dodging creditors and talking to locals about himself. Sullivan would often dramatize his life as a filmmaker to comic effect, such as dressing up in a loincloth and wandering over the wastelands carrying a couple of cans of films to show what it was like to be an independent filmmaker trying to sell their movie to a distributor. The film would start as a personal treatise on whether Fred G. Sullivan was cut out to be a filmmaker, but it would slowly turn into a home movie that captures the Sullivan family, the four kids under the age of six at the time, but especially Fred's ever-loving and far smarter wife, Polly. Filmed in and around his home in Saranac Lake, New York, about an hour north of Glen Falls, 
Sullivan's Pavilion would make its world premiere at the 1987 United States Film Festival, better known today as the Sundance Film Festival, where the film would be nominated for the Grand Jury Prize and be awarded a special jury prize for, and I quote, originality, independent spirit, and doing it his own damn way. Like with Cold River, Sullivan would premiere his film in his hometown of Glen Falls on April 17, 1987, at the same theater, the Route 9 Cinema 5. The film would play for five weeks to sold-out crowds, which would give Adirondack Fred the courage to release the film himself this time around. After screening at several other film festivals in America, Sullivan's Pavilion would open at the AMC Century City 14 in Los Angeles on November 13th. There would be a one-sixth page ad in the Times on opening day featuring pulp quotes from several critics, including Jay Carr of the Boston Globe. But maybe a single-screen opening of an independent movie at the start of the 1987 holiday movie season wasn't the best move. Despite a great review from the Times' Sheila Benson, the film would only earn about $1,500 in its opening and eventually only weekend in Los Angeles. Audiences were still enraptured with Fatal Attraction, and there were so many other new movies to see that weekend. The Running Man, Hello Again, Suspect, Less Than Zero, Baby Boom, The Princess Bride, The Hidden. Rather than realize that maybe he wasn't meant to be a filmmaker, Fred G. Sullivan doubled down on himself. He'd watch the film again and try to figure out a better title for the movie. It would take a few weeks, but he would finally come up with something that he felt best encapsulated the film and its spirit. The Beer Drinker's Guide to Fitness and Filmmaking. You gotta admit, that's a catchy title, even if it is a mouthful. He'd spend another $4,000 to have the lab print up a new copy of the film with a new title. And he'd send that copy to Burlington, Vermont, where the film would open on June 3rd, 1988. Whether it was the sweetness of the PG-rated film or the title, Burlingtonians fell hard for the film and it would play there for seven weeks, earning more in its first week in this town of 38,000 people than it did in Los Angeles and its 3.2 million citizens. In fact, the film proved so successful in Burlington that Sullivan would have to send the old print of Sullivan's Pavilion to the theater in Ithaca, New York that was already booked to play the film on July 1st. Sullivan would even need to create a special ad showing both titles of the film so that anyone who went to see it wasn't confused, which would actually make it more confusing. After the Burlington playdate was complete, Sullivan would swing for the stars and book the film into the legendary Bleecker Street Cinemas in New York for a run starting August 19th. Janet Maslin's review in the New York Times on opening day was perhaps the best review the film had gotten to date which would help the film gross $8,500 in its first weekend. The film would earn another $5,700 in its second weekend, in an auditorium that only sat 80 people per show. The film was originally only supposed to play for two weeks at the Bleecker, but the numbers proved successful enough to extend the run a third week. There'd be a few more playdates for the film, Salem, Oregon on October 21st, one show at the Broward County Main Library in Miami on October 28th, two shows with Sullivan in person talking about the film when it played in Binghamton, New York on December 9th, a full week in Tampa starting February 10th, 1989, a few shows in Honolulu in late March, Detroit in mid-June, Des Moines in late July. The film would even make its way down to Melbourne, Australia, 
But the bookings would stop in August 1989 when the film was released on home video. While never a big film in theaters, The Beer Drinker's Guide to Fitness and Filmmaking would find a cult audience on home video. Today, you can watch the movie for free on the video-sharing website Vimeo, thanks to Fred's son, Kirk, who would grow up to become a filmmaker himself. I'll have a link to the film on this episode's page at our website, the80smoviepodcast.com. After the release of the film, Fred G. Sullivan would retire from filmmaking and devote himself to his family and the preservation of the local Adirondack Park. In 1992, the college Sullivan had been working at, Paul Smith's, would make him their director of development. Sadly, he would pass away from heart failure on April 18, 1996 at the age of 50, while playing in one of the weekly pickup basketball games on campus that made him popular with students. At the time of his death, Sullivan was planning on making a sequel to The Beer Drinker's Guide to Fitness and Filmmaking, on how his life and the life of his family had changed after he had quit filmmaking. Fred G. Sullivan had many dreams and goals, and while he might not have completed some of them, he wanted to be a filmmaker, and he went out there and did it. And even after he lost more than a million dollars making his first film, he went out there and did it again. That takes some real guts, and I would like to think hearing stories like this as a teenager wanting to be a filmmaker himself might have given me more courage to go out and do it. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies we covered this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.